BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Now, Donald Trump wants the Justice Department to investigate who wrote that op-ed in the New York Times. So once again, the Justice Department, according to Donald Trump, is nothing but a bunch of lawyers whose whole job is to make him look good and to defend him, not to enforce the laws of the land. Hey, everybody, what do you say? Happy Monday. It is Monday, September 10. Hope you had a great weekend. Boy, it was the rainiest weekend I think we've ever had in the nation's capital. It did not stop raining. Torrential rain, and it's supposed to be that way again today. Uh, with some flood flood warnings here, uh, but a lot of serious flooding uh, throughout the re- uh, rest of the uh, mid-Atlantic. Uh, and it's just as if that's not bad enough. Hurricane Florence working her way up the uh, East Coast due to strike the Carolinas maybe uh, as late as this evening. Uh, we got our eye on that, and we've got our eye on all the news of the day as well. President Obama unzips. He is out there taking on Donald Trump in two powerful speeches uh, over the weekend. And another titan in the entertainment industry falls, Les Moonves stepping down, finally, Last night, as the head of CBS News after the New Yorker reports on yet another six women accusing him of sexual abuse. So we got it covered. We got all the stories of the day covered. Look forward to bringing it to you and hearing from you, your reaction to what's going on today. Send us your comments on Twitter. We love hearing from you. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. We will dive right in, you and me and all the rest of us. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news, Bill. We'll pick it up where you just started. Hurricane Florence is on its way. They are saying it's going to hit the East Coast uh, pretty hard. The Mid-Atlantic region to the south, South Carolina, North Carolina, both bracing for impact. They're saying that it could be a Category 4 storm before it makes landfall along the southeast coast. 
probably on Thursday, Governor of South Carolina Henry McMaster over the weekend talked about the storm. Pretend, assume, presume that a major hurricane is going to hit right smack dab in the middle of South Carolina and may go way inshore. So both of the Carolinas are bracing again for a potential Category 4. I saw Charleston. They were stocking up yesterday. Charleston's getting ready. Yeah, I talked to my parents yesterday. They're, They're having to brace for it. So again, Thursday is expected landfall. Obviously, a lot of things can change. Uh, but it's really interesting how certain they've been of this. They, there's usually a lot of, there's a pretty wide range of yeah, where these things can yeah. land, especially so early on. They have it pretty <laughs> well targeted right now. What I saw yesterday, yeah, they were zeroed right in where yeah. it's going to hit. So. All right, so uh, we've made a lot of advancements with prosthetic limbs, arms, and legs. Mm-hmm. And people get amazing. Uh, it's, it's wild, right? It's just real, and they look realistic. And people are having completely different lives <laughs> now that they have these limbs. Well, researchers at Johns Hopkins University have created what they're calling an e-dermis. An e-dermis. It is an electronic skin that fits over a prosthetic hand. Oh, wow. And it allows the amputees to feel pain and pressure, which is crazy, right? Like yeah. You might not, yeah. you also might think, like, oh, who wants to feel pain? Well, it's like hot, th- hot things yeah. are sharp things. You'll be able to know. You'll be able to feel them because of the electronics in this skin will go back mm. to your brain and tell you, ow, that's hot, or ow, that's sharp. Or just the feeling of holding something, you'll be able to actually uh, experience that sensation. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? What if you can get a sunburn? That's a good question, actually. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, if you then do you, get one of these e-dermises. You just take it off and put a new one on. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, it's yeah, just exactly. like a glove. Yeah, I can't imagine they're cheap. but <laughs> So put some sunscreen on that thing. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. He's back. Barack Obama hits the campaign trail first of many, first two of many stops between now and November 6th. He is in good form and he's got a powerful message that Donald Trump is a phony and the midterms are the first chance we've got to get rid of him. Uh, he didn't say Trump must go, but... Um, that's the message. What do you say, everybody? Great to see you today, and thank you for joining us here. The Bill Press Show, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, on this Monday, September 10, 2018, after a very, very rainy weekend here in the uh, district uh, and uh, many parts of up and down up and down the uh, East Coast. And it wasn't hurricane-related. Hurricanes did not do until later in the week then that probably means another rainy weekend uh, next weekend. And lots of news going on as well. Yes, indeed, we've got our eye on all of it with uh, President Obama out in uh, Chicago and then in California yesterday down in Orange County, California, I mean on Saturday, with two powerful speeches about what's at stake in the midterm elections. Uh, So important, he says, that he broke precedent with a former president, Juicy, sitting on the sidelines 
Uh, he always said if he really saw that there was a threat to our country, he would speak out and not just remain silent, and he has done so. We'll tell you uh, all about that. The, the powerful head of CBS Corp, CBS News, and the CBS Entertainment Network, Les Moonves, is out of a job after six more women came forward. That's a total of 12 to accuse him of sexual abuse. Uh, don't feel too sorry for him yet. He could leave with a package of stock options worth about $100 million. Donald Trump is still, now he's the one conducting the witch hunt, according to CNN. They have narrowed it down now to fewer than a dozen, just a few people at the White House they suspect of writing that op-ed, and they are determined to flush him out, Donald Trump even saying that he wants the Department of Justice um, to, to do so. And some bad news on the uh, sexual abuse front for Donald Trump, where a judge in New York now has said that Donald Trump must answer questions posed in writing, just in writing so far, uh, not in person, but uh, that he must answer questions posed in writing by the attorney, Gloria Allred, for Summer Zervos, who uh, was one of the women who has filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump, which has been moving through the New York Superior Court. This is a totally independent of Stormy Daniels, totally independent of, of uh, Karen McDougal. This is the one that probably is the most biggest threat to Donald Trump because it's in New York Superior Court, not a federal court. He can't block it. And now at least there's going to be an exchange, written questions and answers. Uh, so that mattered, that, that, that cloud over Donald Trump, uh, in addition to Robert Mueller, in addition to the New York Attorney's Office, in addition to all the rest, that cloud of uh, the, the women going after Donald Trump on charges of sexual abuse will not go away. You know, I'd completely forgotten about some reservos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because just, there's so much stuff, as you mentioned. There's so much other stuff, but that one's just been moving yeah. right through the courts. Yeah. That could be a really, really damaging one. Yeah. And, you know, Gloria Allred has petitioned the court to allow her to uh, take a deposition of Donald Trump. The White House came back and said, Oh, he's too busy. And she said, oh, that's okay. I could go down to Mar-a-Lago <laughs> uh, and ride around the golf cart with him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or sit out on the patio when he's uh, talking to all the guests down there. So she, she made it very clear. He's got lots of time. Uh, look, look at the, look, look at all the time you wasted over the weekend. I mean, going out to North Dakota for a campaign rally for him or going to Montana last week for a campaign rally for him. He's got the time. Yeah, he's got the time. Believe me, he's got the time. Uh, yes, indeed. And we got some great guests to help us uh, through the day. Lorraine Wallert covers the White House for Politico. She'll bring us up to date on all things Trump and Trump White House. Very excited to welcome from Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, former head of the Chicago Police Board, who is a candidate for mayor of Chicago. She was going to run for mayor even before Rahm Emanuel decided not to. She was going to run against him even though he appointed her as head of the Police Accountability Review Board Commission. Uh, but she'll be in uh, to tell us all about her plans for Chicago uh, in, the, uh, in the next hour. And then Igor Babish, our good friend uh, covering politics for HuffPost, will be in as well. Yes, indeed. He, sounded, he looked great. He sounded great. Barack Obama is back. Uh, starting at the University of Illinois on Friday, where his message was, elections do matter. That's why you've got, we've got, all, all got to get out and vote Barack Obama. If you thought elections don't matter, 
I hope these last two years have corrected that impression. And here's your challenge. Here's your duty. Here's your right. You've got to exercise it. As a fellow citizen, not as an ex-president, but as a fellow citizen, I'm here to deliver a simple message, and that is that you need to vote because our democracy depends on it. Yep, absolutely. So, so important. In fact, you know, it's, it's, we can, we've talked about it before. Stress that again. The key factor in November, one word, turnout. That's the word. Turnout will make the difference. Turnout will decide whether Republicans continue to control the House or not. Turnout among our voters, people on the left, progressives, independents, even left center. Turnout will decide whether Democrats have any chance of taking back the Senate, which I really do believe we do. Uh, Turnout will decide whether we put one great big road pardon me, roadblock in the way of Donald Trump. Turnout, turnout, turnout. And so far, so far in every special election, the turnout has been huge, hugely magnified on the Democratic side, on the left. Uh, And that's why we've seen such amazing victories as uh, Andrew Gillum down in uh, in Florida, Stacey Stacey Abrams in in Georgia, um, uh, and uh, Ayanna Presley last week up in Massachusetts. So we've got to keep it going. That's what President Obama is saying. That is the message. Get out and vote. Get out and vote. You know, uh, the farther away we get from Barack Obama's presidency, I think the more we sort of realize, like, he was not a perfect president. There were a lot of problems with Barack Obama, right? Yes. As we, t- we discussed. As them. we discussed. Some people, some people might even call it buyer's remorse, right. Bill, <laughs> if I write a book about it. Yeah, yes. But... To see the difference between Barack Obama and Donald Trump, like I am mad, at, I'm actively mad at Barack Obama, but to see him come out and and take that message to Democratic voters was so nice. It was so nice. It, it just th- yeah. there is no comparison. No, not at between all between the two of them. And by the way, it is things are serious enough that he, he had to come forward. He he couldn't sit this one out. Yeah. Could not sit this one out. In fact, he, he made that point that you think things are bad right now? Things would get a lot worse, he says, if we don't get out and vote. fact is that uh, if we don't step up, uh, things can get worse. Yeah. Uh, by the way, he did have fun with this. You know, Don Trump keeps saying about, oh, these job numbers, these job numbers are so great. So great. Yeah. Rock Obama said, yeah. Yeah. I remember where they started, dude. When the job numbers come out monthly job numbers, and suddenly Republicans are saying it's a miracle. I had to kind of remind them, actually, those job numbers are the same as they were in 2015 and 2016. And anyway. Yeah, so we had a good month, uh, month of August, 201,000 new jobs. That is 95 months, 95 straight months of Positive job growth, over 100,000 jobs, new jobs created, 95 straight months. Uh, I uh, appeared on the McLaughlin Group over the weekend, trying to bring that back, and and the moderator said something, well, you have to admit, look at all the jobs Donald Trump's created. And I said, yes, 95 straight months. May I point out, 18 of them have been under Donald Trump, all the rest, Barack Obama. So thank you, Obama. Yeah. Yeah. Look. 
Donald Trump has not screwed up the job numbers. Okay, we'll give him credit for that. Right. But for all the great job growth and things like that, no, he doesn't get a ton of credit but for it. But look what it has cost us in terms yeah. of voting rights, civil rights, women's rights, Paris Climate Accords, you know, go on and on. Iran nuclear deal, pissing off all of our allies, right? right. I mean, yeah, right. Uh, so uh, it is, as Matthew Dowd from ABC News yesterday, uh, seeing the two of these out there uh, is just incredible. And this, I think, is going to be the play. Obama-Trump between now and November 6. If you pair off these two, President Trump versus President Obama, the one who is most popular today is President Obama. So if I were a Democratic candidate having President Obama campaign on behalf of me or President Trump campaigning on behalf of a Republican, the dynamics right now favor President Obama. But this is a clash of the titans, and I think we're going to see it unfold in the next eight weeks. And also, President Obama really put this in historical context uh, uh, I thought where he said, you know, also, don't think this is like uh, um, something new. This is what the Republican Party has been building toward for a long time. And it's just that the, you know, the stars were in the planets were aligned and Donald Trump was able to to carry forward something that started with the Tea Party and the Republicans have been have been into for in terms of dividing this country for a long time. And he pointed out here reading from uh, the transcript of his speech. None of this is conservative. He says, I don't mean to pretend I'm channeling Abraham Lincoln. He says this at the University of Illinois. But that's not what he had in mind, I think, when he helped form the Republican Party. What we're seeing today from Donald Trump, he says, it's not conservative. It sure isn't normal. It's radical. It's a vision that says the protection of my power and those who back me is all that matters, even when it hurts the country. Yeah, that's all Donald Trump is all about. Me, me, yeah, me. Yeah, really yeah. is. Right. And uh, the rest of the country, be damned. Yeah, him and his so-called, so-called base. You know, the other thing that Obama did that I thought was hugely significant was he came out and endorsed Medicare for all, which any— Democratic politician at this point that was waiting for some excuse to get on board with it, there you go. There's yeah. your excuse. Yeah. yeah. Now, again, I wish he had done that when he was in the White House. So do I. And you should have. Fine. Yeah, totally. And, and it was, read my book, Buyer's Remorse. It was, Don, it was Barack Obama in the beginning who said, no, we're not even going to put that on the table. Then we did have a public plan option for a while as part of Obamacare. Then he took that off the table. So he had a chance. He didn't do it. But still, I'm not going to take it away. We need his voice yeah, now. And exactly. he is out there now. And thank God for that and thank thank him for that. Uh, of course, Donald Trump very graciously said, oh, yeah, he's uh, certainly he's better than I am. No. Donald Trump, first of all, <laughs> he accuses Barack Obama. Remember what I told you about the job numbers. So he accuses Barack Obama of stealing his thunder. I think he was trying to take some credit. He was trying to take credit for this incredible thing that's happening to our country. Mm, oh, yeah. And uh, so what did you think of the speech? I found he's very good. Very good for sleeping. <laughs> I think he was trying to take some credit. He was trying to take credit for this incredible thing that's happening to our country. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, he's taking credit. Well, he deserves some credit for uh, the good things that are ha the good things that did happen to this country, most of which he has wrecked. 
and he certainly deserves credit for getting this economic recovery going after George Bush took us over the fiscal cliff. Uh, by the way, one other thing that Donald Trump keeps taking credit for, it, it, I, you and I didn't realize what a huge success the his meeting with Vladimir Putin was, right? I mean, we saw 45 minutes of that news conference, which was the biggest disgrace we've ever seen, a uh, disgraceful effort of any American president to um, just bend and uh, d- d- totally flatter and agree with everything that a foreign dictator, our enemy, uh, might say. But at any rate, Donald Trump keeps saying, no, this was such an f- incredibly historic meeting. My Putin meeting was one of the best meetings I've had. Huh. It was a tremendous success. But they made it sound like it wasn't. What the hell do they know? We talked about, seriously. You know, someone asked him the question, so what came out of that meeting? It's very successful. Yeah, crickets. <laughs> he couldn't say anything that came out of that meeting. In fact, I guess the only thing we can be grateful for is that nothing did come out of the <laughs> <Right>. meeting. <laughs> Some of the point. things that... Putin wanted, yeah. you know, um, thanks to Jim Mattis and some others, he's not going to get. But Donald Trump basically agreed to anything there, but actually nothing that we know of, nothing that we know of uh, has happened. But Donald Trump doesn't have to worry because Mike Pence is always right there alongside him. Oh, man, I got to tell you. Pence showed himself at his obsequious worst over the weekend, appearing on Fox News Sunday and uh, pledging his loyalty, insisting, pledging his loyalty to Donald Trump again. He does so every time he can. Insisting, no, he did not write that op-ed, even though it has his favorite word, lodestar, in it. Uh, and um, would he would he be willing to go so far as to take a lie detector test? Should all top officials take a lie detector test, and would you agree to take one? I would agree to take it in a heartbeat, and uh, would submit to, to any review of the administration. You think that to do? Hey, Donnie, did you hear that? I said I'd take a lie detector test. Don't you love me even more now? Right. <laughs> Just think about it. We've reached the point where the vice president of the United States has to go on national television and agree to take a lie detector test that he is not the one who is trying to undermine the president or, to put it another way, to save the country from the damage that Donald Trump could do. I mean, that is astounding. It's right. surreal. No, it, yeah. And, and, and this so, is just normal news now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is like, it's it's not that shocking, and it should be like the most shocking thing ever. And you know, again, the picture keeps putting painted, and and hearing him and seeing Kellyanne Conway on the news yesterday and everything. The more and the more Donald Trump talks about it, the more it's obvious that what Woodward says, what the op-ed says, what I say again in my new book, Trump Must Go, don't forget, available tomorrow, comes out tomorrow. So check our website, BillPressShow.com, on uh, what what the book is all about and uh, how you can get a copy of the top 100 reasons to dump Trump and one to keep him. That what what all of these show is. This is a White House in total, total disarray. And we've got this little clutch of people, we don't know how many they are, led by the one person who wrote the op-ed, which was probably a group effort, 
who see it as their mission to protect the country from Donald Trump, their mission to block things he's trying to do, not to carry out orders, even to go so far as to steal documents so that Donald Trump cannot do any more damage than he's already done. But as let's go back to President Obama here for just a second because he talked about it as well. We should not feel good about this. This is not the way things are supposed to work. The claim that everything will turn out okay because there are people inside the White House who secretly aren't following the president's orders, that's not how our democracy is supposed to work. These people aren't elected. (laughs) They're not accountable. They're not doing us a service by actively promoting 90% of the crazy stuff that's coming out of this White House and then saying, don't worry, we're preventing the other 10%. Good point. Yeah, that's right. They may stop a couple of things, but think of all the rest that's going on. And I have to agree with the, that's the one, one thing that I, where I agree with the people who are condemning whoever wrote this op-ed. Uh, they should do the honorable thing, come forward. Uh, and identify themselves and resign. I mean, give up your job if you really feel that strongly about it. I think that that would uh, uh, serve the country better than what they what they are are doing because that would really help again the effort to get rid of Donald Trump. Hey, somebody else is back. Not just Barack Obama. John Dean, remember him? Yeah. You know, by the way, you, you got to think about it. So much of what's happening at, at the uh, at the Trump White House is it's so Nixonian. It's so reminiscent of what we either lived through or remember from the Watergate scandal. When you also had a White House in total disarray, a president who was spending all of his time going after his tormentors and trying and his critics and trying to find out who is really trying to undo him, um, and again. It all had to do with a break-in at the DNC. I mean, with Nixon, it was actually sending burglars to the Watergate. With Trump, it was sending the Russians to hack the DNC. So, you know, the DNC is at the center of it. And so is John Dean. Because John Dean is the one who, of course, um, blew the whistle on the existence of the tapes uh, in front of the uh, Senate Watergate hearings. And it was John Dean at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings uh, on um, Friday, I believe it was, who said, uh, you know, these are things that we've got to um, worry about when it comes to particularly for Brett Kavanaugh, his ideas. And he's written about this. This, this, this. These are part of the documents that were released. We know Brett Kavanaugh believes that the president is cannot be touched by any indictment or any subpoena about or any criminal charges while he is serving as president, which really, when you think about it, is an outrageous, unconstitutional, anti-American concept that the president is above the law. But that's what he has asserted. John Dean says, think, think what that really means. Under Judge Kavanaugh's recommendation, if a president shot somebody in cold blood on Fifth Avenue, that president could not be prosecuted while in office. That's what Kavanaugh is saying. He says, yes, the president is above the law. I mean, not only could he not, would he not have to answer a subpoena for Robert Mueller, not only would he not have to testify, 
Not only would he not have to sit down with Mueller and answer questions, according to Brett Kavanaugh, John Dean says he could even go so far as to commit murder if you follow that to its to its logical conclusion. Uh, and John Dean also adding about these documents. Yeah, there is a point here. The Democrats were not just grandstanding. There is a point we have a right to see before he's confirmed everything that this man has written and documents he, that he has handled even back and maybe especially back when he was in the White House as the staff secretary. That was Rob Porter's job. Remember the guy that handles all the oh, documents yeah. for the president? Sure. A very, very critical job. John Dean says, what about those documents? Frankly, I'm surprised that Judge Kavanaugh is not demanding that every document that he's ever handled be reviewed by this committee. Unless, of course, there's something to hide. Unless, of course, there's something to hide. Oh, I got to tell you, man. This might be. Yeah. If you you watched any of Brett Kavanaugh's testimony, you watched any of of that confirmation hearing, he looks like a guy and acted like a guy. Like, yeah. There's something he didn't want to get out. And I know that's that's not based on reporting or anything like that before anybody gets mad at me. Like, it's just a feeling. It's just a gut feeling and the way that he acted. He's very cagey. It looks like he's hiding something. Yeah, but this whole thing is disgusting to me. First of all, look, they, we can't we can't forget they stole one Supreme Court seat. Okay? Yes, uh, flat out stole one seat, and now this one, they're just now they know they've got fifty one votes. They're just ramming it through, not releasing all the documents, and all the Republicans are going to pull together here, including Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, and they're going to they're going to tilt this court. So far to the right, so far out of step with the American people that John Roberts will be the swing vote. And Brett Kavanaugh, the way they structured these hearings, he survived two or three days and said absolutely nothing. It was all just pap. Didn't answer any tough question, just skated, and they and they let him get. They let him get away with it. Got to mention also Les Moonves, the head of CBS News. He is out as of last night. It was bad enough. Um, a few weeks ago when uh, New Yorker Magazine first, he's the latest uh, entertainment titan to fall. Yep, Roger Ailes, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, starting with Harvey Weinstein, now Les Moonves. Uh, first was six women that the New Yorker identified. They're out last night, with yesterday afternoon, with another story. Uh by Ronan Farrell, again, uh, six more women, total of 12, and the CBS board finally said enough's enough. Uh, they pressured Moonves to announce his resignation last night. Uh, but by the way, from what I've heard, his he will get a, uh, as a parting gift, stock options worth anywhere from, I've seen, $85 million to $120 million. Uh, so crime oh, does pay. God. Crime does pay at CBS. That's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, and whatever it is, they said they're going to take $20 million of it and give that to organizations that support women's rights. Yeah, fine. But that leaves him with about $100 million. Take all of it. Yeah, take, take all, that, all, all of, of his exactly. money. Right. Yeah. Uh, and a Ted Cruz, boy, he wants to lose in a bad way. Man, I got to tell you, mm, boy, is he pissing a lot of people off. Uh, he is uh, barely ahead. I think it's, what, one point now? He's ahead of Beto O'Rourke in Texas. Basically, it's a It's a, it's tie. a tie. It's a tie. I really believe that Beto O'Rourke is going to beat Ted Cruz. He's been to every one of 264 counties in Texas, two or three times, some of them. Uh, so Ted Cruz, 
He 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 came out yesterday and said, "Oh yes, what Bader work is? He wants Texas to be like California, to be like California, with that tofu and silicon and dyed hair." You know, it's just such an old yeah stereotype. I know. I mean. Uh, just for the record, I see more dyed hair in Washington D.C. than I see in uh, <laughs> sure. than in California. Yeah. By the way, sure, yeah, but that old stereotype of California, yeah, right. Okay, Ted, yeah. Well, <clears throat> remember your wife came from California, Ted Cruz. So watch out. When we come back, what's going on at this? Is a, 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 a with this White House in disarray? That's Lorraine Wallet's uh, territory. Her beat for Politico covers it every day. We'll get the latest from Lorraine Waller, so uh, stay tuned here just a little bit. Quick break, and then we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it? Monday, September 10. Hello, everybody. Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. As we come to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill, uh, right here in the heart of the uh, action, uh, and a little reminder, big news of the week, not only release of the uh, Bob Woodward book, but also release of the latest Bill Press book, Trump Must Go. Top 100 Reasons to Dump Donald Trump. Uh, check it out on our website at BillPressShow.com. Uh, and by the way, soon we're going to have, well, I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. There are more than 100, Bill. Why, how, well, it was tough to limit it to 100, but, you know, you only have so much room. Uh, you can't have a book that's too big. But we're going to have a website up where you can add your reasons to my 100 for dumping down Trump. When that's ready, we'll let you know. Meanwhile, check out our website, BillPressShow.com. And we welcome to the program who's been covering the uh, Trump White House and does so for Politico. Lorraine Waller, a good friend. Hello, Lorraine. Nice to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Um, a little program reminder, by the way, particularly for all of our good friends out of WCPT in Chicago, Lorraine Lightfoot, Laurie Lightfoot, I'm sorry, who is, you're the Lorraine, Laurie Lightfoot, candidate for mayor of Chicago, former head of the Chicago Police Board, will be joining us at the top of the uh, hour. Peter, what's been going on? Yes, indeed. We are on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, lots of different comments on lots of different topics. Walker Ogden heard what you were saying about Ted Cruz uh, and brings up a Politico piece, actually, from over the weekend that shows that Lieutenant Governor of Texas Dan Patrick came to the White House uh, to plead with Donald Trump to come out and campaign in Texas because it looks like mm. and he feels mm-hmm. like Ted Cruz could very well lose this thing. Uh, by the way, Mick Mulvaney, budget mm-hmm. director, and Ronnie McDowell, is that her name? Whatever, the the Republican national chair. Oh, Ronna McDowell, yeah. Ron, yeah. Ronna Romney McDowell. McDowell? McDowell, anyway. Oh, yeah. Anyhow, the two of them gave a little briefing for donors in New York Friday or Saturday. I think it was Saturday. And both of them said, we could lose Texas. Yeah. We could lose. Both of them told these donors, looks like we might lose Texas. So people, they're getting worried, rightfully so. they got the most unpopular and the worst U.S. senator of the whole pack running for re-election and the best Democratic candidate we've seen in a long time. Yeah, uh, A couple of other 
couple of other quick comments yeah. on Kavanaugh as well from Twitter. Uh, Joey says, uh, Peter is right. This Supreme Court nominee is very shady and very shifty. And KG says that Kavanaugh will illegitimize the Supreme Court for as long as he's there. If that's what America wants, then the Republicans are on board. Find us on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. So, Lorraine, you might find this uh, interesting that I learned something here uh, just one minute ago. Donald Trump tweeted Mm -hmm. one minute ago, and his tweet says, the White House is a smooth running machine. We are making some of the biggest and most important deals in our country's history with many more to come. The Dems are going crazy. That was a minute ago. Seven minutes ago, he tweeted, the White House is running beautifully. We are making some of the greatest and most important deals in our country's history with many more to come big progress. So he's repeating himself well, in these two tweets. But isn't does that come as news to you that the White House is a smooth running machine? Is that what you see? Um, it does, it does the White come House? as news to me. And I, I do want to note that he corrected his spelling and <laughs> in the second tweet. Um, oh, that's what it is. So that I might see. have been the reason oh, for that. Um, oh. <laughs> look, of course, the White House is not a smooth running machine. Um, I think most people inside the White House acknowledge that. Uh, <laughs> even even a lot of Republicans point out right. that, like, look, this is just his style of doing things. Right. It's not always as organized as other White Houses. Ben Sass, Republican, yeah. a senator mm-hmm. from New Mexico, mm-hmm. saying, every day I think about leaving the Republican Party. Right. He's so disgusted with the Trump White House. Well, yeah. by the way, then leave it, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just fine. Become an independent. I don't care. Become a Democrat, but... Don't don't whine about, oh, it's so tough every day. I have to think about whether or not I'm going to leave the party uh, <laughs> at any rate. But, yeah, even Republicans acknowledge it's pretty much yeah. in disarray. I mean, look, the the, um, the latest thing that's still sort of flying under the radar is that the, the White House, the chief counsel in the White House, uh, Don McGahn, has said he's leaving. Um, this well, is, no, remember, he learned he was leaving. He learned he, learned he was leaving <laughs> by tweet. Um, yeah. You know, he had told the president he was ready to go after right. Kavanaugh. Yeah. Um, the president announced to the world when he was leaving right. <laughs> that it was going to happen. News so, to him. you know, so now we have here, here was a, a guy who's been around Washington a long time. He's t- seen by many to be a moderating influence inside the White House. Um, you know, McGahn is very conservative. He's one of the people who brought Kavanaugh to, like, for example, the president's attention. However, he's, you know, he's a government guy. He served, you know, in other agencies, and um, he was seen as somebody who kept things sort of running as smoothly as he could. Now he's leaving. Um, so it's another huge departure um, for this administration, and Trump has got to fill that slot. And? The, pool, the pool of people willing to go in, I think, is probably shrinking. Yeah. You know, it, this is about the time you, you start to see uh, a, big, a big exodus. But with this White House, of course, we've seen, seen bigger turnover in history than any other administration in its first two years. Um, and so now we'll probably see another bump of people leaving, including important people like Don McGahn. Uh, and so he's going to be kind of scrambling to, I think, fill some of these slots. Well, he tweeted out last week, I'm so excited about the person who's going to be taking Donald, Don McGahn's place. We never saw There was no name attached. Yeah, he never um, announced who it might be. Did he even know at the time? We're not sure that he has selected someone. Um, there, there are a couple names floating around. Uh, one of them is uh, Brian Brooks, who's a lawyer at Fannie Mae, the big mortgage uh, company, the government-backed mortgage company. Um, uh, Brooks is a friend of well, Steve Mnuchin. Well, that's getting pretty far afield, isn't it? 
Well, he's a friend of Steve Mnuchin. Um, oh, yeah. He As w- I say, that's yeah. getting pretty far afield. The, uh, <laughs> Mnuchin tried to bring uh, Brooks into Treasury uh, earlier uh-huh. and uh, at a pretty high level, but... There, as I understand it, there was some issue about um, Brooks having to like um, sell certain assets and stock options and that sort of thing. And it was he was, I think, reluctant to do that, um, and so chose not to go in. And ultimately, Mnuchin said, "Oh, we don't need a deputy secretary. I'm not going to fill that slot." Um, so this is a guy who's been sort of orbiting the administration for a little while. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's fairly well regarded in his you know in the housing field where he's been working in the banking field. But um, I don't know. White House counsel? I don't know. I don't know what experience yeah. he brings to that. So meanwhile, it, uh, it, at least from the reports we hear, what what is the number one issue in the White House right now, right, is finding out who wrote the op-ed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. All right. Yeah. Um, who did? I have no idea. What? No. Nope. You cover the Sorry. White House. Sorry. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. Have they Do you know? seen it? No. Uh, CNN reports that they've narrowed it down to maybe a handful now. So how are they going about this? Are they bringing, do you know, are they bringing people in? Look, people. And making the, for, last week there were like 25 people who on their own. Mm-hmm. Stepped up. Stepped up and mm-hmm. said, I did not write, including, right. I was really glad to hear that Sonny Perdue didn't do it. Because um, he's the first person I thought of. The Secretary <laughs> of Agriculture. Yeah. If it wasn't Ben Carson, it had to be Sonny yeah. Perdue, right? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're among the list of 25 who said, and Rick Perry. Yeah. They're yeah. the, the three I love, top I love suspects. That Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross. Ross. <laughs> had to come no, out and say something. No, like, no. nobody no, thought it no, was no. you, no. Wilbur Ross. So forget those people. It's got to be, it seems to me, would you agree, it's got to be somebody inside the White House. That's my feeling. And it's got to be, it's, it seems to me also, somebody who has to deal with national security, foreign policy issues because they sort of say, we like the tax cuts, we like the judges. You know, we're worried about this, like, yeah. invading Venezuela well, stuff. Right, right. I mean, look, I so, mean, <laughs> yeah. That narrows it down to, uh, I hear John Bolton a lot. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I, look, I mean. Dan Coates, Director of National Coates, Intelligence. I would, I, he'd be higher on my list than Bolton. Um, you know, Bolton has been, uh, <coughs> Bolton likes the administration, I think likes the administration sort of, you know, somewhat isolationist um, yeah, tendencies, yeah. right? Um, and um, so I, I'm not sure it would be. I'm not sure it would be him. I think it's somebody who's more like somebody who's more of a globalist, right? Um, yeah. Might that, that's so. No, Bolton's not high on my list. Who, Mattis, who else? Mattis. Mattis. Mattis is high on my list. Yeah. I'm just guessing. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. I, my first thought was McGann, right? That was my f- first instinct. Well, he's on his way out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but then why not wait and write it after he left? So. I'm not sure. I don't know who it is. Uh, right. So um, you didn't mention, and I didn't mention, Mike Pence. There's some fingers pointed uh, to him, too, because right. it, the op-ed talks about invoking the 25th Amendment. But Mike Pence yesterday mm-hmm. appearing with um, Chris, Chris Wallace, Wallace. Mm-hmm. on Fox News Sunday. He not only says he didn't write it, he is willing to prove that he didn't. By taking should, a lie detector. Mm-hmm. Should all top officials take a lie detector test, and would you agree to take one? I would agree to take it in a heartbeat <laughs> and uh, would submit to, to any review of the administration. Do you think that to do? The, 
There it is. So, um, w- will the will they ask everybody there to take a lie detector test? I, you know, I don't think it's going to come to that. I mean, but then again, this is the same White House who told everybody to sign a non-disclosure agreement, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I think I, I don't think it's going to come to that. But we've all been surprised every single day by this White House. So. You know, again, who knows? But I, I suspect if you get if it gets to that, you see a, another exodus of people. Right. Yeah. Now, Donald, Kellyanne Conway was in, in hinting at this over the weekend, uh, but so did Donald Trump, that writing this op-ed could in, could represent criminal violations, and Donald Trump has has actually called on. We're not sure whether he issued an order or not, but he has called on the attorney general to launch an investigation into who wrote this op-ed. Mm-hmm. Did he give an order? Do we uh, know? Or? No, not that I know of. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure this attorney general is, you know, really that excited about doing this president a whole lot of favors right now. Um, you know, this is a guy who's, uh, um, what was he, an idiot? and Not dumb you know, southerner. Dumb southerner, mm-hmm. right. So, um, and mentally retarded? I'm not sure he's, the- yeah, I'm not sure he's inclined, Sessions is inclined to do a whole lot of favors for the White House. But of course, you know, if the president orders it, it's not clear what crimes might have been committed. None. If, you know, so None. Um, None. it's a, it's a this is a, a loyalty problem, and that's why Trump is so enraged, right? This is somebody who's maybe didn't break any laws, but certainly betrayed him as a person. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but when yeah. you when you when you add the com- when you add Woodward's book to the mm-hmm. op ed. Mm-hmm. Where Woodrow's book saying that some people like Gary Cohn and Rob Porter in mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. were so worried about uh, some things that Donald Trump was trying to do that they would actually steal documents from his desk so he could never sign them. And then the op-ed comes out and says basically the same thing, the same thing. Yeah, right. I, I mean, yeah. so the American people can kind of believe that there is um, a little resistance inside the White House. Mm-hmm. That was the. I Head, thought, yeah, the headline the, they put on the op-ed. The timing of the this is, I thought, was re- really unusual, right? Do you, I mean, I don't think it was coincidental that it would come out before the midterms. I, well, I don't think it's coincidental that the op-ed came out at the same time as the book. It just seems it it might be, but it makes me wonder. Like, so I'm, you know, I'm guessing that one of Woodward's sources <laughs> is also behind the op-ed, right? Right. Yeah. That was my first point. thought: is how much stuff is is parallel between what we heard from the book and the op-ed. So clearly whoever wrote the op-ed was interviewed for the Woodward book. Yeah. Mhm. That was my that was one of my thoughts. Yeah, I agree. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I I I saw Woodward uh, with David Martin yesterday on CBS who said that he had there were over 100 sources for his book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. what he is. I mean, he does interviews and then he reports on what the interviews are adds them all together. That's the book. And he's got the tapes for every one of them. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he was saying the other day, Woodward himself was saying the other day that, you know, he'd been reaching out to a, a, a one high-level official who kept dodging him and called him one night at 11 o'clock at night and said, hey, can I come over? You know, and the source is like, it's 11 o'clock. Well, can I come over? <laughs> you know, and the source the source invites him over. So, you know, he had a two-hour interview with this guy or, you know, at 11 o'clock at night at his house. So he's very dogged. Um, I think he, you know, he's a guy who it, dots the, his eyes, crosses the T's, you know, and the tapes. He, he's in a position right now where 
it's considered an honor to be asked by Bob Woodward to be interviewed, to be interviewed mm-hmm. for his book, mm-hmm. any one of his books, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I remember I was stunned by how many people in the Bush White House and in the Obama White House openly talked to Bob Woodward because they couldn't turn him down. I yeah. mean, for them, yeah. it, was their, it was their chance to be a little part of history. Mm-hmm. And that's why he gets this good stuff. He's trusted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no matter what Donald Trump says, right? Well, uh, he, was Donald Trump asked to do an interview? <laughs> I think that's still a matter of, do we know if he was Well, asked? I'll tell you who uh, he has been asked to do an interview by, and that is by Gloria Allred, who is the attorney for Summer Zervos. We hear so much about Stormy Daniels and her non-disclosure agreement and the $130,000 payment. We hear so much about Karen McDougal, right, mm-hmm. and her $150,000 mm-hmm. payment uh, and her and her story and her attorney. But the Summer Zervos case has been just plodding along in New York Superior Court. She's a former contestant to The Apprentice. That's right. Um, accused Donald Trump of sexual harassment. She, oh, she, he called her a liar. Right. She has sued him for defamation. And the White House has tried to knock that case down, knock it down, and the judge says, nope, this case can continue. There's sufficient cause here mm-hmm. to have to, to investigate the basis of the charges and let the case go forward. Right. Um, I, I'm, you know, kind of trying to sum this up, but um, then Gloria Allred at, requested the chance to depose the president of the United States. The White House again said, no, he's too busy. We don't have time for that. And she said, you know, I'll come down to Mar-a-Lago and right. hang out, and we can just, you know, over tea or something. I can talk to him. I want to interfere with his schedule. Um, so the judge didn't go along with that, but he did order now that the president has to answer questions in writing submitted by Summer Zervos's attorney. Correct. Which could be it or could be the first step toward an actual uh, in-person deposition. Right, right. So this just – this this – cloud will not disappear over Donald Trump. Uh, look, these, these three women who have been sort of out there, you know, circling, you know, we, we have Russia, everybody's focused on Russia, everybody's focused on palace intrigue. Right. But yeah. in a way, these three women out here sort of are on the periphery right. could be one of the biggest, um, um, you know, presenting the biggest risk right now to uh, Trump's administration. Because we, we all know Michael Avenetti and Stormy Daniels, and he's He's pressing his case to get Trump deposed in her in her mm-hmm. litigation, um, even though Trump and Michael Cohen have offered to settle that case. Avenatti is saying no way. Um, uh, McDougal and then, you know, and then and then Zervos. They they won't quit. You, you, you nailed it. Like these things are just sort of squeezing in on the White House and and maybe even more faster than the Russia investigation is squeezing in. Um, and uh, I'm just sort of waiting for a meltdown, right? Because th- they're getting dangerously close, and you've got Michael Cohen now probably turned um, mm-hmm. in these civil in the civil litigation, um, which could feed into the Mueller investigation, right? So all of these pieces fit together, and I, I think that they've given um, momentum to you know investigations into Trump's campaign finance, uh, you know misdeeds, possible misdeeds. And some other things. So, yeah, these these three women. It's, it's going to be interesting because, you know, it might not be Russia. It might be, it might be. You know. If we 
we lose track of some of this, right? It's mm-hmm. hard to keep track mm-hmm. of all the legal battles that Donald Trump is right in the heart of right now. I mean, here's another. Okay, so let's just, um, we got the Michael Cohen thing up in New York, right? We got the Robert Mueller thing, obstruction mm-hmm. or possible collusion, right? You've got Stormy Daniels. You've got Summers, uh, mm-hmm. uh, K- Karen McDougal. Mm-hmm. You've got Summer Zervos. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, there's also this um, financial thing for the Emoluments Clause. That's happening. That's yeah, happening that's right happening here, here. In, in this court. Right. right? Yeah. You know, um, so. And I believe there's a state. All, on yeah. all of these fronts, yeah. and he's right at the heart of all, any one of them, any one of them could score. Right. Right. Yes. Or the whole bunch of them. Right. And yeah. by the way, uh, let's add to that. Uh, impeachment hearings if the Democrats take control of the House. Well, look, so, I mean, yeah, it doesn't even have to go to impeachment hearings, right? All, all, all we have to do, it, you know, even if the Dems don't go that route, there are plenty other places for oversight committees in the House to start digging. You know, the, the oversight committees have been basically AWOL these past two years. Um, a lot of them are controlled by true blue Trump loyalists. Um, and so those committees will be freed up to start digging in all sorts of places. So even if impeachment doesn't right. happen, you've got potential for serious damage to the administration. Which the Republicans realize. And mm-hmm. that's why that famous memo a couple of weeks ago is saying that the Democrats take over. Here are all the areas that we can expect them to be holding hearings. And, you know, the answer to that is you're damn right, mm-hmm. because elections do have consequences. And by the way, anybody who scheduled like 25 hearings on Hillary's emails mm-hmm. or 23 hearings on Benghazi, Benghazi. It, they can't complain right. about too right. many oversight hearings. Right, right. So, yeah. so that whole thing could come crash, crashing down. Um, one other um, person who resurfaced over the weekend, uh, George Papadopoulos. <laughs> we know last week he was sentenced to two weeks in prison. The judge said he should serve some time for lying to the FBI just to make sure people understand this is not cool. Um, but Papadopoulos appearing with George Stephanopoulos. Yeah. Papadopoulos and Stephanopoulos. <laughs> Boy, the Greeks take over this week. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, um, he says a couple of a couple of interesting things. One, at this famous meeting where of the Donald Trump's candidate Trump's foreign policy advisory team mm-hmm. with uh, Papadopoulos. Who was the other guy who was on there that? Um, Carter Page. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, but uh, know-nothings, right, that they threw together real fast. Remember when Donald Trump announced the names of them, nobody knew who they were, any of them were, except Jeff Sessions, who was the head of it. Right. So Papadopoulos, coming back from London where he had all these meetings, spilled the beans, triggered the FBI investigation into Donald Trump because he was talking about talking to Russians about getting dirt on Hillary. Mm-hmm. Papadopoulos says at this little meeting, hey, I've got a good idea. I I think we should have a meeting, set up a meeting between candidate Trump and President Vladimir Putin. And Papadopoulos still insisted again yesterday that both Trump and Jeff Sessions were okay with this. Here he is. Candidate Trump at the time nodded at me. Uh, I don't think he was committed either way. He was open to the idea. And he deferred, of course, to then uh, senior uh, Senator uh, Jeff Sessions, who uh, I remember being quite enthusiastic. Yes. Uh, and he said, so they said, so George asked him, so why did you lie to the FBI? You knew you had these meetings. Why did you say you had not met with these Russians? 
I found myself pinned between the Department of Justice and the sitting president and having probing questions that I thought might incriminate the sitting you president. You were trying to protect the president. Of course. Yeah. yeah so right. he lied to protect Donald Trump. Right. Which is what Donald Trump, I think, expects That's right. Everyone. any of his people to do. Yes. Yes. Uh, Barack Obama, President Obama said that in Illinois on Friday, that, that the whole purpose of this, the whole vision of the Trump presidency is all these institutions and all these people exist to protect me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, come a long way, huh? <laughs> Boy, it makes your job interesting for sure. Lorraine Waller covers the White House for Politico. You can follow her on at politico.com. Thanks, Lorraine, so much for coming in. Thanks. Always good to see you. Likewise. When we come back, Lori Lightfoot's going to join us. Yes, she is a former head of the police board in Chicago, now a candidate for mayor of Chicago, coming up next here on the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Now, President Trump wants the Justice Department to investigate who wrote that op-ed in the New York Times. As if the Justice Department didn't have more important things to do. And beside, what's criminal about writing a critical op-ed about the President of the United States? Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It is uh, Monday, September 10. This is the Bill Press Show. So good to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us as we boom out to you coast to coast from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. With all the news of the day, and there is lots of it. Donald Trump's still in the warpath to find out who wrote that op-ed. Meanwhile, President Obama, he is back. He is back in force with a speech at the University of Illinois and another speech in Orange County, California, uh, stepping up to say the country is in such danger, going in such a wrong direction, uh, that uh, he feels compelled to come off the sidelines and speak out and encourage people to get out and vote and do what they can to stop uh, the work of Donald Trump and the congressional Republicans who are supporting him. But we're going to uh, take a little break here this uh, next hour to talk about one great, big, wonderful city called Chicago and the future leadership of Chicago. We welcome Laurie Lightfoot, former head of the Chicago Police Board and now candidate for mayor of Chicago to the studio. Hi, Laurie. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you and be here. Good Thank you. Good to meet you. We are on WCPT out there every day, so we sort of you bring it home for us right now. <laughs> and we've got lots of issues to talk about that will affect cities, not just in Chicago, but around the country which we'll jump into with Laurie Lightfoot and with all of you. But first, 
You got it. Just a couple of other stories making news. Congratulations to Kaylee Foster. Kaylee Foster was crowned homecoming queen of Ocean Springs High School in Mississippi. Now, that's not necessarily the biggest news story uh, of the day. But after she won homecoming queen, before Mm -hmm. the big football game for the homecoming football game for the high school, she then put on her football uniform because she plays on the football team. She is a kicker for the Ocean Springs High School no football kidding. team, and it came down to her kick for an extra point at the very end of the game that led her team to victory 13-12, to which gave them the big win. So not oh. only did she win homecoming yeah. queen, she went out and <laughs> won the big football game for the whole school. Congratulations to Kaylee Foster. Pretty cool, right? It is cool. You would think maybe they'd have her see how she played before they made her the homecoming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yet another blow to Alex Jones's media empire. We talked about last week. Twitter said they were going to permanently ban him. Well, uh, at the end of last week, it turns out Apple has now pulled the InfoWars app off of the App Store. People can no longer get it. It is... They are citing objectionable content. They have rules about objectionable content, and they said that the InfoWars app does violate the rules over that objectionable content, and so he will no longer have his app, which was kind of the last way that he was really getting out there. Google has has Mm -hmm. banned him. Spotify has banned him. Facebook has banned him. uh, Twitter has banned him, and now Apple uh, and Periscope, which is owned by Twitter, so that like his live video stream really has nowhere to go anymore. So, this could be the end of Alex Jones. Uh, I would like to think it would be the end, the end of his hate speech, but uh, I don't think we're that lucky. And uh, are we supposed to feel sorry for Alex Jones? No, absolutely no, not. Okay. Absolutely. One final quick story because it's Monday. Let's take a look at the weekend box office. Number one was The Nun. The Nun, it's a horror movie. It's not for me. I'm, I can imagine you're probably not going to see it, Bill. Uh, no. Scratch uh, it off my list. But it brought in $131 million <laughs> worldwide and was enough to be number one this weekend here in America with $53.5 million. Uh, I think that just shows uh, how weak the lineup of uh, movies that are being released. Trump's America. <laughs> Back in the This is the Bill Press Show. <clears throat> he is back. Barack Obama back on the campaign trail uh, with a powerful speech. Two powerful speeches over the weekend. Things are so bad, he says, that he can remain silent, no longer warning about the dangers of uh, Donald Trump and encouraging people to get out and vote in the midterm elections. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's great to see you today. This is Monday, September 10. And the Bill Press Show booming out to you coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And we join you on every platform that we can online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Coast to coast also on Free Speech TV and on the radio out in Chicago and the greater Chicago area on the great progressive voice of Chicago, WCPT. That's 820 a.m., uh, in Chicago, one of your own, one of your proudest, uh, in studio with us, 
Laurie Lightfoot, former head of the Chicago Police Board, former head of the Police Accountability Task Force, and now candidate for mayor of Chicago in the studio. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. You um, have worked uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? Um, worked for a big law firm in Chicago, worked for Mayor Daley uh, mm-hmm. in Chicago, but that didn't all come easy to you. You started out a uh, small town in Ohio. Right. How'd you get from there to here? Well, right. it was kind of a long journey, and I actually made stops here. I used to live a few blocks from uh, the studio. Was oh, that right? Um, right after college, worked on the Hill. Look, I, I you had... You know, everybody starts out on Capitol Hill. <laughs> it seems like. No, it's, it's a great neighborhood. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I had parents who struggled very hard, but really um, pressed us as children to really make a, our way, recognizing that education was the key, um, and, and pushing us to take advantage of every opportunity that was there. So I did, went to Michigan um, undergrad, uh, worked mm-hmm. here on Capitol Hill for a couple years, and then I was fortunate enough to get a, a full scholarship to the University of Chicago Law School, which is what took me to my beloved city of Chicago. Right. Um, and you were... Go- go- so Mayor Rahm Emanuel named you head of the chair of the Police Accountability Task Force. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, even before he announced he was go- not going to run for re-election, you announced you were going to run against him. Right. Why? What did did do you get become disillusioned with Mayor Emanuel well, or what? Well, first I love my city, um, but it became very clear that the gulf between the haves and the have-nots in Chicago was growing by the day. And unfortunately, uh, Rahm Emanuel either didn't hear, didn't care, but he didn't do put forward a real comprehensive plan to deal with the fact that, for example, we have forty percent of African American children that live in poverty. We have pockets of. Um, unemployment across our city that routinely hit 25% or higher. And that doesn't uh, include the mm. people who just stop looking for work. We they suffer from food, mental health, medical, on and on deserts. And our city in those neighborhoods in particular is coming apart. There's no beacons of hope in vast stretches of Chicago, particularly in black and brown communities. And I um, jumped into this race, wanted to highlight that disparity, but also to offer specific concrete solutions on how we can move forward and do better. You almost got the feeling, listening to uh, Mayor Emanuel when he said he was not going to run for re-election, that he felt the city is ungovernable. Well, I think he, look, despite the spin, he's not running for re-election because he couldn't win. Poll after poll mm-hmm. showed him either in the low 30s or, or in the 20s in approval rating. That's not some place that you want to be as a two-term mayor trying to fight for a third term. The city's um, issues are, are significant, but everything that we need to do to address these problems and move forward in a different, more progressive way is available at our fingertips. We have tremendous resources in the city of Chicago at the grassroots level, in the academy, in business, in our civil rights committee. We have a, a, a vast array of progressive grassroots organizations. So if we had a leader who understood the, both the challenges but also the opportunities, was willing to roll up her sleeves and move forward on a new progressive path, we could get the job done. There's lots of examples of it happening, but we need the leadership in City Hall to add jet fuel to these various uh, efforts in the neighborhoods and bring things to scale and improve the quality of life for Chicagoans. Now, as you say, there are a lot of issues. One of the big issues that has been uh, 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 that you've been most very involved in, not exclusively at all, is police community relations. Yep. 
Um, and we hear about all the time in Chicago, not a great reputation for that. Your board, you made 126 recommendations That's right. to improve police-community relations. What happened to them? Um, unfortunately, many of them Rahm Emanuel completely ignored. So one of the reasons I jumped in to um, offer myself up to the voters as mayor is because I know how to get the job done, and I will make sure that those recommendations and recommendations of the Department of Justice are actually implemented so that we have a 21st century police department that understands its respectful constitutional engagement with the community is the most powerful tool that they can have to serve and protect. What do you think some of the what what are some of the most important steps that that that, that the police department should take? And sh- By the way, let me, let me just ask a factual mm-hmm. question um, because the Trump administration this this was going down the road maybe toward a consent degree. Right. The Trump administration Walked comes away. in. What's the present status of? of so, in the ab- in the absence of the the Trump administration <clears throat> coming forward, the Illinois Attorney General actually brought suit against the city a year ago. There's mm-hmm. now a draft consent decree that's been put out to the public. Many people have com- commented on. I think they said they got 1,700 different comments. I issued like a six seven page critique of the draft the consent mm-hmm. decree. Soon it's going to be presented to a federal court, and then it'll go um, from there. So we're moving forward on the consent decree, but there's still lots of work that needs to be done. And what are the two or three things or more that you think are the most important things that police could do to to improve their relations with the public? I think one of the most important things is making sure that from an ethos, from a mission standpoint, that they emphasize to everyone up and down the chain of command that they must engage in a respectful and constitutional way and really view community engagement as a powerful tool. Number two, there's got to be far more accountability. On a yearly basis, we spend 50 to $60 million alone just on police settlements and judgments uh, in attorney's phase related to misconduct. In the last seven years, half a billion dollars. So we, there's got to be a real effort made at police accountability so the public views them as legitimate. If they're not viewed as legitimate, they're not going to be welcome in neighborhoods. If they're not welcome in neighborhoods, they're not going to be able to protect and they're not going to be able to solve crimes. So that's critically important to be able to have a public safety system that offers real protection to people in neighborhoods. But that can't be done if the police are viewed as a rogue force that's way beyond accountability. Body cams? Body cams are actually already in place. Um, there's the the last of them should be rolled out, um, um, but before the end of the year, we have body cams, we have dash cams. But again, if they're not reviewed as legitimate um, force for good in communities, if there's not beat integrity, meaning if they're not getting out and and learning and establish relationships with the people within the beat that they're supposed to be working in, all of this is for naught. It also seems that there are too many <clears throat> police officers who whose first move is to grab their gun, not their last move. Well, and, look, and, I, I, and it con- you hear a lot about mm-hmm. we need more training, you know, and when it's legitimate and when, uh, and, and yet so often, not just in Chicago, across the country, you know, we see police officers, particularly white officers mm-hmm. against the young black men, just first thing they do is pull out their gun and fire, and they get away with it. Well, we've seen some pretty horrific examples of that across the country, um, to be sure. There's a case now that's just started in Chicago 
involving Officer Jason Van Dyke, who um, killed Laquan McDonald, who posed, Laquan who, posed McDonald no, yeah. who posed no threat to him whatsoever. I think the videotape is very the clear on that. The videotape is disgusting and <clears throat> shocking. It, it, yeah. is, it is one of the most shocking things that I've ever seen. And I'm a former federal prosecutor. I've seen a lot of horrific things in my day. That is absolutely one of the most shocking. And unfortunately, if we look across the country, the track record, particularly of officers being held accountable for on-duty conduct, is, is abysmal. Um, the uh, Philando Castile killing up in Minnesota, um, the officer who um, shot a man who was running away from him in the back in South Carolina, same thing mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Those, those shock the consciousness and, frankly, I think further delegitimize the police. But the more, I think, insidious thing that we don't talk about every day is the interactions, the daily thousands of interactions with police officers and people in communities. Every single one of those interactions is an opportunity to heal a wound, to build a relationship. And if officers don't understand that and recognize it, then they're missing a real opportunity to, frankly, uh, bolster their legitimacy in communities. By the way, I have a I have a yeah. question because we have sure. a lot of Chicago listeners that are listening live, mm-hmm. and uh, one of our favorites is Romaine, my buddy Romaine. Uh, he says he wanted us to ask you about using bait cars in poor oh, yeah. neighborhoods in Chicago. <clears throat> That's something that apparently is a big deal out there. Yeah, there was a, there was a an incident that happened. We had this horrific weekend where there were over seventy shootings. Um, 12 um, uh, homicides and that That's just a couple of weekends that was ago. just a couple of weekends yeah. ago and then that next Monday what burst onto the scene was um, there were some robberies at a local um, train yard and Chicago police and in, in cooperation with railroad police put out what was called a bait truck it was a um, S- or a um, 18 wheeler and it literally had tennis shoes dangling out the back of the car. They, they left it in a poor neighborhood and were doing surveillance to see if anybody would come. I mean, look, no one obviously should be stealing anything. Private property is private property. But to basically set up an entrapment situation in a poor community where people are hurting and desperate for any kind of resources was so offensive Um, And then the police department tried to disclaim any relationship to it, even though their officers in uniform were caught on video. Look, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about that sets back the necessary healing and bonding of relationship between officers and communities. Yeah, I mean, that... that it's absurd. That does not build any... Certainly does not build any trust. Absolutely does not. No. Um, So do you believe that Colin Kaepernick and the... uh, NFL players who take a knee have have served a useful purpose in bringing national attention to this issue? Well, I, I think, look, there's a lot of people that were in, working on these issues on the ground and nationally um, in a lot of different areas. Unfortunately, I think, frankly, the purpose for uh, Colin Kaepernick first taking that knee got completely, oh, um, oh, completely yeah. diverted and subverted. Thanks so to I think Donald fran- Trump. Yeah, thanks to sure. Donald Trump. Frankly, thanks to um, what's happened with the NFL and the NFL. Some owners saying, "Well, if you take a knee, I'm going to, I'm going to sanction you." Look, the issue of police misconduct. And what's happening in black and brown communities is real. It's a serious issue. It, it hinders our ability to provide effective public um, safety in neighborhoods of color that, frankly, desperately need it. So I think that Colin Kaepernick obviously risked his career to make an important point. But I want to make sure that that point doesn't get lost. The need is still there. Um, it, we're working hard in Chicago to make sure we do everything we can to um, keep our community safe. 
That's one of the reasons why I've been speaking out. Public safety cannot be a commodity that is only available to the wealthy. In Chicago, wealthy communities who have lost faith in the Chicago Police Department are hiring private security to mm. basically provide and do uh, perform the role that you would expect police to do. So there's a problem that has to be solved. You mentioned this weekend I wonder, uh, the, the, where there were 70 shootings and some right. problems. Uh, how much of that is gang violence and what how widespread is it in Chicago look what, I, what neighborhoods are impacted and what's the answer well look I, I think we have to be careful We're about not, using the word gang one violence yeah. here's the issue the violence that's going on in Chicago is is a public health epidemic and we have to call it that because what we're seeing are communities in distress where young men in particular who have no real ability to connect up with legitimate economy, taking what's available to them, which is the illegitimate economy. And we know that the drug economy comes with violence. They go hand in hand. Right. What we should be doing if we dealt with this as a public health crisis, which Rahm mm. Emanuel so, so far has refused to do, is we would be looking at the root causes. Like I said, Poverty is rampant in way too many of these communities. Unemployment, no real jobs, no small business activity. We've got a crisis in access to health, mental health resources. We've got children going up in some of these neighborhoods in Chicago that experience a level of trauma that is akin to our veterans who have done multiple tours um, in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's a huge problem that is not being addressed by city government. So that's why we've got to focus like a laser beam, provide a comprehensive program to relieve the stress and disinvestment and disparities in these neighborhoods. If we do that, we will, of course, drive down. Violence also, though, which distinguishes Chicago from L.A. or New York, we've got way too many guns on our streets. Mm -hmm. We live next to, unfortunately, Indiana, where the gun laws are so lax that literally you can go across the border, buy any kind of military-grade weapon, um, in any quantity that you want, and bring it back to the streets of Chicago. Uh, and um, <laughs> Chicago's own gun laws are pretty str pretty stringent, actually. The problem isn't guns that are originating from Chicago. We have no gun stores in Chicago, but we've got Indiana, we've got Wisconsin. There's a consistent um, stream of gun trafficking from southern states like Mississippi, um, and we've got gun shops that are literally lining the um, um, the borders of Chicago. That's where the guns are coming from. So what we don't have right now is a proactive plan to stop the guns before they get on our streets. That requires us to be engaged with our federal partners, the U.S. Attorney's Office, ATF, DEA, FBI, but not just in the Northern District of, of Illinois, which is Chicago. They've got to also be engaged with their counterparts in Indianapolis, in northern um, Indiana, all the way down to Mississippi, so that we are proactive in stopping the shipment of these legal guns onto our streets. Laurie Lightfoot is with us. She is a candidate for mayor in Chicago, the great city of Chicago. I have to tell you, after San Francisco, Chicago is my favorite city in the country. I, I love visiting. Don't, don't get there often enough. have great friends there, uh, some of whom we know together. Um, mm -hmm. But that, particularly the the the, the lakefront, um, you know, Millennium it's Park. City. It's just an absolutely incredible city. I'm lucky enough to uh, uh, write a column for the Chicago Tribune, their syndicate, and of course, start be part of WCPT mm -hmm. every morning out there. So I feel we're part of Chicago. Um, well, we're going to see and, what we can do to get you to say Chicago's your number one city. 
invite me back often enough. You Definitely. Great That's restaurants, fine. too, my dad, yep. by the way. Uh, so you are <laughs> one of, um, tw- the last I checked, a bus one load. of 12 <laughs> candidates running yeah. for mayor, right? Yeah. And now that Rom's out, there may be like a few more. Right. So what, and <clears throat> look like a good group of people. What distinguishes you from the other 11 running so far? Well, I think what distinguishes me is my, <clears throat> excuse me, my background and my experience. <laughs> excuse me. Yeah. I've helped run. Yeah, there I am. I've helped run very complicated city agencies: the police department, the city's nine one one center that does emergency response, homeland security, and the city's procurement department. So I know what how city government works in detail. I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I've spent time, obviously, on the most important issue of the day, which is police reform and police accountability and violence. I'm a for, also a former federal prosecutor. There's nobody in the race that has my breadth of experience. But more to the point, you got a lot of people in the race who are doing the critique, but not nearly enough people doing the, here's the positive path forward and the prescriptions. So we're talking about ways in which we can build a broad coalition of folks from all over the city to use the resources that are already there in Chicago to move us forward in a more progressive path. That's the difference. It's easy to lob bombs from the sideline. It's much more difficult to come up with comprehensive and pragmatic solutions to the issues that challenge us. You've used the word progressive a couple of times uh, mm-hmm. in, our, in our time together here. So where, do you, where do you put yourself on the scale of, um, of politicians today who are running for office? I mean, are you a... <clears throat> Bernie sister or a centri- or a centrist look, or I think a, that I think Barack that Obama Democrat kind I of think a the vi- I, Democrat where do you where do you see well, yourself? look I think the values that I have from growing up in a very difficult circumstances as an African American woman in the 1960s and 70s where overt racism were the rule of the day where my father who grew up in the segregated South also had a disability he was deaf and watching him and my mother struggle to keep us together. My values are all encased in social justice, equity, and inclusion. And that's what are my North Stars. What I'm offering is using those values as the starting point for any system of governance, for any policies that we have, inviting people whose lives are directly affected by government policies as welcome participants in a process where we get to a better place. So that's what I'm talking, when I think about progressive, that's what I think of, the values and the action. And the action is bringing people together, not ignoring people, not coming up with a pre-baked solution, but offering up a prescription that starts with engagement and listening to our people. Is um, Chicago a sanctuary city? It is a sanctuary city, but it's got exceptions that are problematic. And the exceptions allow for our police department to cooperate with ICE. So if an ICE agent comes and says, I've signed this document as a detainer, then you, Chicago Police Department, must cooperate with me. I'll stop that. No way that we should be cooperating on the basis of signature of an ICE agent. If there's a judge that's actually had the opportunity to weigh um, the evidence and then a judge issues a warrant, then of course we're going to pl- comply with it. But the, the um, loopholes in our Section Woody City ordinance allow for ICE to frankly be on the streets of Chicago and terrorize our population, and we can't have that. Should we abolish ICE? Look, I've said that ICE has now become so legit- delegitimate that it serves no useful function, and yes, we should abolish it. 
But we have to also then be concerned with what's going to be uh, put in its place. And as we well know, under under the land of Trump, abolishing ICE, while we can say it, while we can mean it, is not going to happen. But what you need to keep doing is making sure that ICE respects the rights of people on the ground. And as mayor of Chicago, one of the first things I would do is go to um, the uh, agent that's in charge of ICE in Chicago and say, not in our city. You are not going to do as we've seen happen in cities across the country. Surveil a father as he's taking his daughter to school and then arrest him in front of her. You are not going to... um, uh, um, uh, deport and arrest people who are seeking medical care in our hospitals. There's got to be rules. There's got to be boundaries. And we need to make sure that we're enforcing them in Chicago. One big uh, issue that states and cities across the country are dealing with right now uh, are the um, unpaid and maybe unpayable pensions uh, yes. that they're that they're facing. I I don't know, but I'd be willing to bet Chicago faces the same challenge. Chicago and the state of Illinois are unfortunately in a very difficult position because way too long um, we had pension holidays. Things were kicked down the road. And in 2020 in Chicago, as mandated by um, the state legislature, we have to make a significant um, um, payment um, to make sure that our pension plans are solvent. Look, there's no magic solution, and, and part of the solution has to come from the state. The problem is Chicago has not been a proper fiscal agent for precious taxpayer dollars. We waste literally, and I mentioned this before, hundreds of millions of dollars by not having any kind of risk management system, not having anybody who's focused on making sure that not we're not squandering those dollars. And we have probably some of the most regressive taxes, levies, and fees that are um, imposed upon the least able. So before we can talk to um, taxpayers about revenue and progressive revenue sources, we've got to demonstrate to them that we've got our fiscal house in order. And I've laid out a number of different things that need to be done, starting with uh, making sure that we have a real risk manager in place to identify and mitigate the kind of risk that shows that we're burning through taxpayer dollars at an untenable pace. Lori Lightfoot, uh, as a candidate for mayor of Chicago, and your website is lightfootforchicago.com? That's right. That's what it says at all. I mean, that's what it's all about, lightfootforchicago.com. So for um, all of our friends around the country, but particularly for all of our friends uh, listening on WCPT, 820 a.m. out in Chicago, um, your vision for Chicago, what, you know, when you you see the Chicago that you want to see and you want to deliver is what? My vision for Chicago is one where we come together as a community and help address the challenges that we all face as a community. It's not, it's not um, somebody else's problem. When we think about the violence that's, that's raging in our city, when we think about the, the deteriorating condition of our neighborhood schools, um, when we think about the fact that we have regressive taxes that fall disproportionately on those least able to bear that weight, Those are all issues, but they're also, frankly, opportunities. I envision a Chicago where no matter who you are, no matter who you love, no matter what neighborhood that you live in, that we all come together with a common sense of purpose to move forward to Chicago. For way too long, 
We've had factions, we have parochial interests, and we've had in the last seven years an us-against-them style of governance that divides people, that turns them off, and frankly, it makes them lose confidence in our ability to actually take on and solve these problems. What I'm offering is a completely different new Chicago, a new progressive Chicago where we can move forward together, but we could only do that if we come together. We don't let the factionalism and the parochial interest divide us. We can move forward together. And the election is February 26? 2019. 2019. Not that far away. No, right. we'll be there. All right, Laurie Lightfoot, great to meet you. Nice All to right. meet you as well. And Thank you, luck, sir. Good luck down the road, uh, and it's going to be a hell of a race with somebody, the whole busload of people involved. Huh? <laughs> and I hope Indeed. to see you soon in Chicago. Well, that'd be great. All right. Come on at back. All right. We'll work on that, making it the number one favorite city. All right. <laughs> Laurie Lightfoot, uh, again, it's lightfootforchicago.com. We'll get back to uh, politics on the national scene with Igor Babish from HuffPost coming up next here on The Bill Press Show. Thanks again, Laura, for being with us. We'll be right back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Monday, September 10. Here we are. It is The Bill Press Show. Welcome, welcome. Wherever you are in this great land of ours, we welcome you to the program and encourage you to send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show about the news of the day. Uh, and remind you again, uh, big book release this week. Yeah, Bob Woodward's book. Yeah, you know, there is that also. But there's this one, which I care more about, frankly. It's my latest book. comes out tomorrow. Trump Must Go, the top 100 reasons to dump Trump. I know there are a lot more than that. We'll give you an opportunity to add your own reasons. Uh, but check out our website at BillPressShow.com for uh, all the news about this book and uh, where you can get your copy and all that kind of uh, good stuff. Got to keep the pressure on. Remember, it's a threefold punch. Woodward's book, New York Times op-ed, my book, Trump Must Go. Igor Babish covers uh, all kinds of politi- the political scene for HuffPost. Joining us again in the studio. Thanks, Hello, Bill. Igor. It's hey. good to see you. Are, are you releasing any secret tapes to go along with that book of yours? Uh, Omarosa, Bob Woodward, and I, we all have our tapes. <laughs> and the tapes drop when they have to, to make the <laughs> right, when they will most embarrass people. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the new playbook. You gotta, you, you know, you got to follow up with the tape. doesn't yeah. matter what it is. I know. I got to learn how to do that on my phone, right? Yeah. You know, where you get a phone call and right away you. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 do you use your? Oh yeah, all the time. Really? Yeah. Okay. So what's happening? Uh, you, I know. Uh, before we get to some of the more broad political scenes, but uh, the Kavanaugh hearings last week, you uh, spent a lot of time covering those. In with all the, the you know back and forth and all the drama, were any votes changed? I mean, that remains to be seen. Um, some of the key votes that we were looking at, you know, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, all the red state Democrats um, have been still undecided and are not saying how they're going to vote. But I think all signs point to them eventually voting to confirm him. Meaning with 51 Republican votes or do you think there'll be any Democratic votes as well? I mean, I, there's going to be a handful of Democratic votes. You do believe? Yeah. 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 Um, from, I don't, these, from these red state senators. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't. Democrats put up way more of a fight than I expected. You know, it, going into them, I didn't think that there was going to be such a show, but they they did manage to you know kind of hoot and holler. Um, 
kind of press the case and make this campaign against him. Um, you know, there was there was the uh, <laughs> Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker from New York, screaming, bring him on, you know, come on. New Jersey. That's <laughs> New Jersey, excuse me. Screaming, bring him on. Come on, bring the charges. Yeah. You know, if, if you're going to vote to expel me, go ahead and do it. But this is the fight that that's worth you know talking about. So um, they, they had these moments that were helpful for them, I think, which is what they were trying to accomplish going into the midterms and, you know, trying to rile up their base. Um, but in terms of changing everybody's vote, I, I think that's uh, not not yet to be seen. There's a lot of criticism of Chuck Schumer that he didn't do enough to stop or derail the Kavanaugh nomination. A lot of criticism of Chuck from people on the left. That's right. Um, progressives especially were urging uh, Schumer and the what Democratic What could he leadership. have done without any more votes? <laughs> well, ultimately, I don't, I don't think there's a lot more that he could have done, but uh, progressives were demanding that he somehow uh, hold the red state Democrats, you know, together with his caucus and force them into voting uh, against Kavanaugh. And I'm not sure, you know, how much power does he really have to, to compel them to do that when their their votes and their jobs are, um, they could be on the line if, if they vote against him. I don't know whether it was on your site this morning, I saw this or not, but somewhere that now um, some Democrats, some progressives are urging Schumer to file perjury charges against Kavanaugh. That's right. That's that's the new fight. Um, it turns out that Brett Kavanaugh back in 2006 or 2004, when his initial uh, judicial confirmation hearing was, made some statements that Democrats are now saying uh, are misleading at, at best and are uh, worthy of a perjury charge at worst. Um, so that's the statements kind of the, made at these hearings or previous hearings? Pre- previous hearings about you know his involvement as a Bush White House official with some. Uh, 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 judicial nominations, and also about this controversy arising over um, some Democratic talking points that were leaked back in 2004. Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont oh, right, right. was was make made a big deal about stolen that. emails that yeah. They, yeah they're saying they were stolen from uh, Democratic uh, offices by a Republican staffer at the Hill at that time. Right. Um, the one of the maybe surprise witnesses uh, on Friday, a voice from a blast from the past and a voice from the past, um, John Dean, who uh, made the point that if you he was particularly uh, concerned about Kavanaugh's um, beliefs uh, on when it comes to presidential power and that the in in effect the president cannot be touched with subpoena or charged with crimes or anything as long as he is president of the United States, which I find kind of a bizarre uh, holding if you've ever read the Constitution. But at any rate, that's what Kavanaugh has argued when he was in the White House. John Dean says, if you take that to its extreme. Under Judge Kavanaugh's recommendation, if a president shot somebody in cold blood on Fifth Avenue, that president could not be prosecuted while in office. Seems to me that's the logical conclusion of what Kavanaugh is saying. Uh, was that one of the big arguments that didn't carry any weight at the hearings? Uh, it was one of the big themes, uh, the Democratic argument against Kavanaugh. You had you saw several senators trying to make uh, the case that his previous writings and speeches, even as you know as early as last year, um, that he believes the executive, this unitary 
uh, theory of e- executive power that the the executive branch uh, overrules all others on this on this issue that you cannot prosecute, you cannot file a subpoena, and you know, time and time again, when Democrats pressed the nominee about this, he would say that you know, listen, uh, I'm an umpire. Judges have to rule on, as an umpire. I've got to be independent. I cannot answer this question. Um, so he was really slippery and evasive, and really followed the footsteps of previous nominees on this issue. Right. And it's particularly telling for Kavanaugh because, I mean, chances are like almost nine out of nine that that question, there are going to be some charge. At some way, it seems there's so many legal problems that Donald Trump is right in the middle of that somehow this issue is going to come up and be referred to the Supreme Court. Pardon me. And Kavanaugh will be there uh, asked to issue his opinion based on the man who appointed him. That's right. And, uh, you know, even when Democrats asked if he would recuse himself, commute to re- recusing right. himself from these issues, which could could happen as soon as next year. You've got, you know, the president's oh, yeah. lawyers. Right. I mean, if Mueller issues a report right. accusing, which could be, could, yeah, accusing so he, Trump of wrongdoing, that'll be in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah. And he, he refused to commit himself to, to recusing himself from that uh, consideration. Right. Uh, so where are we now? What happens next? Uh, they just wait a certain time and then vote, or yeah, they haven't scheduled yet um, a, a a a panel um, a judiciary committee vote. So they've got a vote. Um, it's expected to be a, you know razor thin party line vote, eleven to ten, eleven re- Republicans on the panel, mm-hmm. ten Democrats on the panel. Um, as soon as we see that, then you'll see a final floor vote, and in between that time. Um, we assume that a lot of the moderates who are sitting on, who have been sitting on the sideline or at least <laughs> maybe pretending to sit on the sideline um, until this proceeding is gone uh, are going to say how they're going to vote. Right. Um, I forget who it was, Peter, it was in last week who, who um, they've been keeping track of exactly how many senators have not yet. And, and of course, that count changes every day, so I don't know yeah. what it is today. But um, Oh, it was from Indivisible. Indivisible, Indivisible. That's yeah, right. they're, they're keeping track of something. Yeah, but you're right. Like the red state Democrats in question, none of them, I believe, have not indicated how they will vote. They haven't, but you know, they have made some comments and, that to reporters in the hallways that you know, you, you kind of read the tea leaves. They've been asked, um, "Have you found anything concerning in the testimony so far? Anything disqualifying?" People like Joe Manchin, Heidi Camp, High Camp have said, "You know, no. He he seems like." A qualified nominee. Right. And then on the issue of reproductive rights, you know, Susan Collins said she met with him and he assured her it was settled law. And then there was this email that popped up that last week that mm-hmm. he had written while in the Bush White House, I believe, right, saying, well, not all, not all lawyers would agree it was settled law. And even if it was, the Supreme Court could overrule that. Anyhow, right? That's so right. that kind of undercut what she was saying. He told her. Then now she comes out and says, "Well, that's no kind of no big deal." Yeah, she totally downplayed it. She said it didn't contradict, you know, what he told her that it was that Roe v. Wade is settled well, law. Well, it either is settled law or it's not. So if he <laughs> says it's not after saying it is, I mean, that is a contradiction. I mean, it just highlights how ridiculous this whole settled law answer is. It's a very legalese, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Everybody on the left and on the right knows and recognizes that 
no Supreme Court precedent is settled law. It just takes five votes to overturn a precedent. Um, So, you know, whatever you may say, and that's exactly what Kavanaugh was acknowledging in that email that came out that was one one of the most interesting parts of that hearing, um, that, you know, at the time he said that you had three justices who would vote to overturn. Right now, there are possibly four, likely four, and he could be the fifth. Right. And don't we have to uh, admit and acknowledge that no matter what he said at the hearings, he would not even be where he is. He would not have been on the list if he had not committed to overturning Roe v. Wade. He was handpicked, selected, groomed by the Federal Society, this conservative legal group that um, has nominated his has picked a lot of a lot of Supreme Court justices, including those some of those who are sitting there right now. Um, so you know these guys are. are um, have been in the in the field a long time, and uh, there's a certain kind of aspect ideology that they're looking for. On the committee, we mentioned one of them, but there were at least three Democrats who are at this point uh, interested in running for president. They made no bones <laughs> about it. That's right. Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris of uh, California. Um, did any one of them help their presidential chances by their? Uh, um, appearance on this and their questioning. I think so. In in the all at of, least all three, or? at least in the Democratic primary. Yeah, uh, you know. Well, that's what definitely. we're talking about, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> definitely. Um, they wanted to show that they were fighters, because this is now you know twenty twenty is going to be about who can show that. Um, it's kind of like the opposite of the Trump presidency, right? You've got Michael Avenatti going out there saying you've got to be a fighter. Um, so they had to prove to their base, their voters, that they can. Um, take on Trump and, you know, take up that mantle. Mm-hmm. Um, Igor Bobby's with us from HuffPost, HuffPost.com, of course. I've seen a couple of stories uh, lately, just in the last couple of days, um, which make the point that don't think the Democrats, uh, that it's impossible that Democrats might take back the Senate. More and more people say, okay, the House looks pretty good, yeah. not not. A done deal, but looks looking pretty good. And up until this point, a lot of people were saying, "Yeah, but the Senate's going to kind of stay where it is." Now people are right. I just saw one this morning. There's a path to Democrats taking control of the Senate. Do you see that path? And if so, where does it run? Um, I there's been a lot of talk. You're right. Uh, I don't know how likely it is. I, I'm. I would. You know, I would put the odds at two out of ten or something like that. But there is a really path that low. Okay, there is a path. I mean, you've got competitive races now in Texas. Believe it or not, if you believe the polls of uh, of of Texas voters, you know, a lot of people still haven't tuned in. It's still early. It's still September. You know, I I would want to wait until a couple weeks more until we see the numbers then. But um, you've got Texas. You've got uh, Tennessee now. It's competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marsha Blackburn there, not not as as likable as past Republican nominees. Uh, you've got Florida, uh, where Democrats are surprisingly not doing as well as mm-hmm. as they hoped. Rick Scott is, you know, obviously really well funded. Um, Indiana last in, week, we Indiana, saw Joe Donnelly. Sort Indiana, of jump Donnelly, up. right? Indiana Dem- Republicans there aren't looking as as solid as they believed. Uh, West Virginia, Joe Manchin is still riding high right now as yeah, of this yeah. moment. Ma- Manchin's in. That's right. And uh, Montana, uh, Joe T- uh, John Tester doing pretty well mm-hmm. for himself. So a lot of these races you see, um, you know, if you had a Republican, or, excuse me, if you had a Democrat in the, in the White House, 
a lot of these races would be gone already. But because Trump is so unpopular and uh, really unlikable, Democrats really have a shot in all of them. Right. Uh, you mentioned Texas, which is one of the most interesting because uh, people didn't think that Tennessee would ever be in play, and it is now because of Phil Bredenson. By the way, we didn't end up, uh, Nevada should be on that list too. That's right. With Dean Heller uh, and um, Marcy, is that her name? Oh, Kathy. Ah, damn, blanking on the Democratic <laughs> candidate there. Uh, Trump is wacky. Martha wacky Jack, Jackie Rosen. Jackie Rosen. <laughs> wacky Jackie. I had to remember, Jackie. Ja- I had to remember <laughs> Wacky Jackie right. to get there, yeah, but right. yes. But so, and people thought Tennessee would never, it is. Uh, and they never thought Texas might be in play. But it really, you've got to say, it is now with Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. And the last poll I showed was like a one-point difference. Yeah. And so uh, Ted Cruz really tried to help himself over the weekend by saying that um, – Beta Rourke wants to make Texas the next California. That's right. With tofu and silicon Ugh. and dyed hair. Ugh, awful tofu. Ugh, just. <laughs> I love how Ted Cruz tries to own Beto O'Rourke constantly, but ends yeah. up just making him look cool as hell. No, the last time, yeah, he, he put out an ad actually accusing him of dropping the F-bomb. Yeah. And somebody pointed out in Texas. Yeah, that's Senator. This is Texas, okay? Like we all do, right? Drop. So they dropped that ad after that. Yeah, yeah. That ad lasted like less than a day. Mm -hmm. Like, if any state is not going to be deterred by naughty language, it's Texas. Uh, My my favorite thing though is that Ted Cruz now has Donald Trump coming in to campaign for him. Yeah. Which, first of all, Mm. uh, having a sitting incumbent Republican president coming in to campaign for you in, in deep red Texas is. Already a bad sign, but but you uh, have to have it right. Right. But also, that the two of them would appear on the same stage. That's together. right. That's right. I mean, you you know, you remember the Republican nomination? Uh, vote your conscience. Ted Cruz coming out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that that fight between the two of them. You know, Lion Ted. Lion, is he going to refer to him as Lion Ted on stage when he says go vote for him? Somebody's- Ted Cruz's father might have killed JFK, but he's the right man for Senate <laughs> in Texas. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and his wife may be uh, whatever. What did he say about his wife? I forget. Well, it was pretty. He ugly. Th- he retweeted a, th- a picture of a very right. unflattering photo yeah. of Ted Cruz's wife next to Melania. Right. Yeah. And saying like, "Hey, my wife is a lot. Essentially, hotter. my wife is a lot hotter than your wife." Uh, someone told me over the weekend. I haven't had a chance to double check it. That David Hogue, the Hogue, Hog, Hogue, whatever the from Parkland. That's right. Uh, is he's got some little pack I think that he's running or he's involved with some of these sections. But he's um, paying for billboards in Texas. Hmm. The billboards that that repeat some of the tweets of Donald Trump against Ted Cruz during the primary. Oh, that's funny. I and love just, it. Uh, and has just up these in, in <laughs> cities to Texas. Right? And it says, Donald Trump says, and it has <laughs> what he said That's about, hilarious, actually. That is. Bringing that back. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. I hope, that, I hope that's I want to believe that. It's, yeah, it's going to be the new three three billboards in Texas, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it it you know, it's uh the, the, they need to to flip two of these, hold on to everyone the Democrats need to hold on to everyone they've got. And or pick up two. They pick up lose one maybe, pick up three, whatever. They yeah. could they could the, easily it won't be a a blue wave, right? It won't be a sweep. But Democrats could end up with a one or two vote advantage in the Senate. It's crazy. Um, 
you know, if there is a wave, which all signs right now are looking pretty good in that in that aspect, you know, if you look back to 2010, the number of candidates who were outraised, number of Democrats who were outraised, now even greater on the Republican side. So there's a lot of money coming in, and the way these things usually work is it's it breaks late. Uh, so you see a lot of close rate close races right now, but as soon as a lot of the independents and you know people who aren't really tuned in or paying attention start to make up their mind, you'll you'll see the numbers really shift late in the race. Right, and it's becoming. It seems that it's becoming more and more, and that that while Republicans may want to run on the tax cut bill, although unlikely, or they may want to run on the job numbers or the economy overall, that Donald Trump goes out of his way to keep saying, no, the <laughs> issue is me. That's right. Right? The issue is whether you agree with me or not. He even said in Montana, I think it was last week, if I get impeached, it's your fault. I mean, that's what this election is all about. Yep. You have to get out and vote, and if you don't, I'm going to get impeached. And so it's up to you to vote. I mean... This is not what Republicans want to run on, I, I would imagine. No, and it's not what Democrats want to run on either, at least top Democrats. They'd, they'd not want to be you know, led down this rabbit hole of uh, promising to their voters they're going to push impeachment and uh, giving Trump uh, this, this line that he can then use and tell his voters to but come But to what extent the does it, do, do the midterms become a referendum? I mean, it's almost, we can't avoid that, right? It, yeah. They are a referendum on Donald Trump. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And his dozens and dozens of uh, scandals, you know. A hundred <laughs> top reasons. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, his his family separation policy is, is proven to be extremely unpopular. There's still some 500 children who are not with their parents right now. Um, and this has proven to be such a like anchor on his presidency, his his approval rating that it, it's really threatening um, his his future. Right. So that almost every vote it seems to me, whether it's state, even state legislature, if it's governor, Congress, and Senate, somehow Donald Trump comes into play there. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the beauty about these kinds of elections is that if you've got an angry voter who's coming out of the polls to vote against somebody, then they're also going to vote probably straight ticket down for a Democratic candidate helping you know elect a lot of these downstate, down-ballot candidates. Right. Um, and from what we hear, too, um, I mean, that you mentioned Donald Trump going down to Texas. I mean, this is what he he's going to be doing even more of, right, between now and November 6th. Yeah, I think he's going to be on the campaign trail at least a couple times a week now. And there's really, honestly, nothing more that he loves <laughs> than going out so, to his campaign rally, which is where the only place he, he feels loved anymore, really. If he comes back to D.C., there are all these books coming out every day that he's got to deal with. <laughs> yeah, you know? people writing his books, right? Yeah, yeah. No, he lo- no, he loved that's, that's He's in his element. Uh, it was 90 minutes that he spoke in Montana, just just freewheeling and just you know rambling and whatever, uh, and um, I think maybe twice he mentioned the name of the Senate candidate. He was out there. <laughs> all, all the rest was all about him and about Woodward and about the op-ed and about boom 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 boom. Right, and and the decision now that some of these candidates have to make, especially if you're you know in a 
suburban district and you, some of your voters don't know how they really feel about the president is whether you want him there in the first place at all. Right. But you can't really stop him, can you? He, <laughs> he says he showed Where was it that he showed up at? Was it Pennsylvania, Connor, uh, not Connor Lamb District? Somewhere that he went yes. and they had not invited him or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you see the story about the plaid shirt guy? No. This is so funny. The plaid shirt. So I this was story. in yeah in Montana last week. There's this. So they always put the biggest supporters right in back of Trump. So they're cheering. You know, you see them. <laughs> they're the ones that are on television. Right. Well, somehow in Montana, there's this guy in a plaid shirt in back of Trump. Who kept going? No, no, and all kinds of reactions. Very, his and not applauding. While Trump was speaking. Right, <laughs> were amazing. You know, like this. And it turns out he's a 17-year-old high school kid, and he he just signed up. He wanted to go to the rally, and somehow he got a call saying you're on the VIP list, hmm. and you get a photo with the president, and you get a great seat. And they put him like that's by was, the way how they hire chief of staff. The, the White House <laughs> yeah, too. and the White House counsel. Right, right. And so he shows up in back of Trump, and suddenly people are looking at television, and they see that this is not a good picture, right, this guy? So <laughs> they threw him out. Some Somebody walked up to him and whispered to him, and he just, they said, you have to leave, and he left. You know, he didn't put up a fight. But it's That's just, amazing. Yeah. That's amazing Isn't advance the way, like, right Secret there. Service talked to him afterwards? Secret Service it was a whole him. thing. They, all trying to, they thought he was just some... Like code pink protester, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a high school kid who just walked into it. Uh, That's hilarious. <laughs> Too bad he didn't have a dumb Trump side. Or a Trump must copy of Trump must go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Igor, it's always great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. All right, Igor Bobbish at HuffPost, HuffPost.com. There it is. Monday is all yours, folks. Make the most of it. Come back and see us again tomorrow. This is The Bill Press Show.